0: The Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to John, begins the Easter story, as do all four Gospels, with the visit of a woman to the tomb. Not expected to find what she found, an empty tomb, but instead seeking to grieve and mourn. And John's story, as he tells it, Mary Magdalene was, The lone woman who went to the tomb, she saw that it was empty. She ran and told Peter and another disciple, whom we think probably was John, though it doesn't explicitly say that. They have a foot race to get to the tomb. They go check it out. Sure enough, it's empty. And then Mary has an interesting encounter with the fellow that she assumes to be the gardener, but later realizes is Jesus. Fast forward to that evening after Mary and the two disciples find the empty tomb, and after Mary's encounter with the risen Christ, which she presumably shares with the other disciples, the story continues on the evening of that first Easter. From the Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to John, chapter 20, verse 19 through 31. When it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, It was the beginning of the work week for them. It it would be like us Monday, but it was in fact, since the Jewish Sabbath was Sundown, Friday to Saturday, it was Sunday, the first day of the week. When the doors of the house where the disciples met were locked for fear of the Jews. When John uses that phrase, the Jews, it's been interpreted in unfortunate ways, uh, sometimes to legitimize some pretty ugly acts of anti-Semitism. When John uses that phrase, he's talking about the Jewish leadership, the Jewish authorities. Never forget that everybody in this story, including Jesus, is a Jew. But the disciples were locked in a room for fear of the Jewish authorities. Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. But Thomas, who was called the twin, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the mark of the nails in his hands, and put my finger in the mark of the nails, and my hand in his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were again in the house and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were shut, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hand. Reach out your hand and put it in my side. Do not doubt, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have come to believe. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may come to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. And that through believing, you may have life in His name. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Most gracious God, may we receive Your life-giving word and may it be implanted within us by the power of Your Holy Spirit. And may all of the meditations of our hearts and the words of my lips be found acceptable unto you. In the name of Jesus Christ we pray. Amen. It's an interesting way this story begins. It's still Easter. They've received the good news of the empty tomb from at least two of their own number, as well as the testimony of Mary Magdalene. And yet, where does this story begin? they were locked in an upper room because they were afraid. Jesus had been released from the tomb and the disciples were still in lockdown because of their fear. Repeatedly, again and again, throughout John's Gospel, people do or fail to do various things because the primary motivation is fear. Fear can paralyze us. Fear has profound effects on us and upon our behavior. William Willimon, who was a now retired bishop of our church, who was uh, for years and years the dean of the chapel at Duke University, tells a story about earlier in his career, prior to his academic career, when he was still a pastor of local churches, He was appointed to a church that, in his judgment, was just paralyzed with fear. They were afraid because they were dying. Their heyday was many years in the past when, at least as they remembered it, the sanctuary was full and the youth program was active and the Sunday schools were full of kids. And the... Nope. They had plenty of money for the budget and plenty of volunteers for the programs. Those days were long gone. And when people asked him, where's your church? He would give them the address, the street name, but in his heart of hearts in his mind he would say, well, I know where my church is. They are smack dab in the middle of the valley of the shadow of death. That's where my church is. And he said it was really a rough first year there because of this pervasive sense of fear that hung like a pall over the whole congregation he began his appointment there as, as all pastors do in the beginning of the summer it varies a little bit from conference to conference i think he said it was the end of june and you had the dog days of the summer and then trying to to get the programs that are taking the summer off jump started in the fall and get enough people to volunteers to staff it and but at least he thought, well, you know, Christmas is coming, Advent is here, who doesn't want to be with with fellow worshipers during the Christmas season? And apparently the answer was lots of people at least didn't want to be with them during the Christmas season. It didn't get any better. And then they, as they moved into Lent, and Lent is always kind of a downer, and as it happened that year, and he, he lived in South Carolina at the time, they had... Some snow and ice, probably not a whole lot, but enough to shut down South Carolina. And so then they were two weeks behind in the giving for the budget. And as they were approaching Easter, they weren't sure how they were going to pay the organist for Easter Sunday. But he said, you know, they, they were trying really hard to, to put on some special, something special for Easter Sunday but they all did it with a sense of resignation that, well, you know, this isn't going to work either because none of the other things we have done have worked. But he said when he got to church that Sunday, he noticed the parking lot was unusually full. He wasn't quite sure what that was about. Maybe they had hired some additional musicians because in that church they used to have trumpets and timpani and, you know, all the big fanfare for Easter Sunday, which has been a long time since they could have afforded any of that. But as it got there, there there were even some visitors sitting in the sanctuary. That hadn't happened very often. And by a quarter of eleven, the ushers were actually bringing out folding chairs to put in the aisles. And they said excitedly, "Him that this hadn't happened in a couple of, in at least two years. Already the service hasn't started, and our worship attendance has exceeded." Anything that it's been in the last two years. And of course, what pastor isn't buoyed up by that kind of spirit of enthusiasm, and they sang, Christ the Lord has risen today. And when they got to the last verse, somebody didn't remember, somebody out in the congregation said, Let's sing it again. And you know, what did you do? Well, yeah, by golly, let's sing it again. And he kind of got caught up in it. And he said, you know, as people decades later he would encounter people long after he would left as a pastor of the church. They would talk about the nothing short of miraculous turnaround and growth that that church had experienced as it became reacquainted with its community and engaged with the surrounding community and engaged in mission and vitality and growth. Everyone would say, and you know, it all started on Easter Sunday. Not because of anything they had done. But because the risen Lord Jesus showed up unexpectedly in the house on Easter Sunday and brought new life into the midst of fear and despair and death, I would like to suggest to you that that may be a parable for how we are to understand this story. To this day, Willimon says, when people ask him about this or that church, do you think it's possible that they they might turn around because of course that church is kind of typical of mainline Protestantism today across the board. Doesn't matter the denomination. It doesn't matter the size. It doesn't matter whether it's city or rural or suburban. Churches live in an age of anxiety because of fear, because of decline. And when someone asks him, can this or that church turn around? His answer is always the same. I don't know, because at some level it's up not up to them, it's up to Jesus. And if Jesus shows up in the power of the resurrection, then absolutely yes. Otherwise, maybe, maybe not. So the Evening on that day there, the disciples are locked away in fear. They've received the news for whatever reason. They don't accept. They don't believe. Maybe they're afraid because the Rome, look what the Romans did to Jesus and they were his right-hand man. And it's entirely reasonable to assume that the Romans would be anxious to do the same thing to them. For whatever reason, they're locked away behind closed doors. And Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. That word, peace, is a powerful and profound word. Today, when we say peace, we think of you know peace in the valley, calm, um, no fussing, no fighting. Um, but it's, it, it includes that, but it's so much more than that. Actually, conflict is not the opposite of peace. Apathy is. People just don't care. When Jesus speaks peace, it's the underlying, that the old Hebrew word shalom, which means an overpowering sense of well-being because of the presence of God. It said as a greeting, it said as a goodbye, may shalom be with you. And it is precisely because of Jesus' message of shalom that many of the authorities and the principalities and powers reacted as they did. Because this kind of peace, this kind of shalom disrupts the status quo and make no mistake about it, there are certain powers in the world, then and now, who have made their peace and their accommodation with the world as it is, and don't want to see it disrupted. This is not the first time Jesus has spoken this message of peace, this message of shalom. Uh, going back to chapter 14, he says, Peace I leave with you. my." Peace I give to you. I don't give to you the way the world does. Don't let your hearts be troubled and do not let them be afraid. Jesus tells them in this passage that His peace is the peace that the world can't give and the world cannot take it away. It's a sense of wholeness and peace that transcends the circumstances Because it is the peace of God. Later in chapter 16, again he says, I've said this to you so that in me you may have peace. In the world you face persecution, but take courage. I have conquered the world. Later in the same passage, he repeats the the gift of peace when he says to them again, peace be with you. So. As the Father has sent me, so I send you. By this time of the Easter story, Jesus has already said more than 60 times in John's Gospel that God has sent him. But now Jesus is turning around saying that he is now sending the disciples. And notice how quickly... By the power and presence and blessing of Jesus Christ, the disciples have moved from cowering, fearful, paralyzed, shut up behind locked doors, to courageous, world-changing disciples that will scatter the corners of the world and change the world with this world-changing, life-saving good news of the peace of Jesus Christ. When he had said this to them, that he, you have peace, and that as the Father sent me, now I'm sending you, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. Imagine someone who has showed up for a job interview, and, you know, that's always a, A tense, awkward time. And there are a lot of questions that are asked of this and that of the applicant. And at the end of the interview process, the applicant is told, hey, you've got the job. But, oh, by the way, it's not the job you were applying for. It's the one two steps higher on the organizational chart where you're going to be in charge of the whole department and you're going to have a huge budget and you're going to have staff and you're going to do things that you've never done before. And the person that's applied for the job is saying, hummina, 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 I, I don't know how to do any of that. I don't, I can't do that. And the, the people on the interview team try and reassure the candidate, it's okay. We will give you all of the resources you need the staff, the training, etc., that will enable you to do these things that right now you can't do. That's pretty much the situation that the disciples are in. Jesus tells them, receive the Holy Spirit. He he tells them that you are now to be sent just as I have been sent. Jesus, we can't do that. Yes, you can, because here is the empowerment that makes it possible. Here is the Holy Spirit. And he breathed on. This is John's version of Pentecost. And the language John uses is significant. John's gospel echoes a lot of Old Testament stories, especially the creation stories in Genesis. That beautiful prologue that begins John's gospel. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and through him everything was made. Does that ring any bells, remind you of anything? It's taken a, a chunk of it at least, it's taken almost word for word from the creation story in Genesis 1. With Jesus breathing on them, recall the creation of the first humans in Genesis 3 verse 8. They heard the sound of the God, I'm sorry, this is after the fall. God is walking in the garden in the evening, the breeze, the time when Adam and Eve had unbroken communion with God. And they had hid themselves from the presence of the Lord because they had disobeyed and they were afraid. Isn't that the the situation, the disciples have hid themselves behind locked doors in an upper room because they're afraid. Maybe they were afraid of the Romans. Maybe they had all denied and scattered, denied Jesus when the time was worse. Maybe they're afraid of Jesus. Maybe they believe the testimony of Mary Magdalene. Jesus is at loose in the world and, you know, how am I going to face it? But then the breathing on them goes back earlier in the creation story to chapter two. Then the Lord God formed the Adam from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and the man became a living being. In Hebrew, the language the Old Testament is written in, and Greek, the language that the New Testament is written in, the same word means breath and wind and spirit. It's only because of context that it's translated as one or the other of those three things. God created the first human out of the mud man out of the dirt and re wind spirited the breath wind spirit into the mud man so that he became a living being. Or during the time of the exile, when Israel has, as a nation, it has died. The the temple has been destroyed. Jerusalem is in ruins. Most of the people have been carried away into captivity in Babylon. And many of you will remember that, that strange vision that Ezekiel had. Look around at this valley of dry bones. There's nothing to be seen but skeletons. And not even skeletons, the bones aren't even connected together. Just dry bones laying on the ground. And Ezekiel 37, 9. Then he, the Lord, said to me, Prophesy to the breath, wind, spirit. Prophesy, mortal. Say to the breath, wind, spirit. Thus says the Lord God, Come from before breath, wind, spirit, O oh, breath, wind, spirit, and breathe, blow, spirit, upon these slain that they may live. He says, And then I heard this rattling sound as, as all the bones came together and flesh and sinew came over them. And they came to life and they were living beings all over again. Is that not the same sort of thing that's happening in this story? Jesus shows up to a bunch of discouraged, dispirited, tail tucked between their legs, forlorn disciples who are hiding behind locked doors, maybe from the Romans, maybe from him, and breathe upon, them, receive the Holy Spirit. And they had new life that they had not known just a moment before. Their lives were prominently, qualitatively, quantitatively changed by Jesus imparting the Holy Spirit to them. And T. Wright tells us that the point of receiving the Holy Spirit, it is clear, is not to give the disciples new spiritual experiences, though to be sure they will have plenty, nor is it to set them apart from ordinary people the sort of holier than now club. So to be sure, they will be called to live the rich, full life of devotion and dedication that is modeled on Jesus' own. No, the point is so that they can do in and for the whole world what Jesus had been doing in Israel. As the Father has sent me, so I'm sending you. These, now 11 disciples, now that Judas is no longer counted amongst them. These 11 disciples, who had nothing else to commend them, most of them were fishermen. Many of them may have been illiterate. Changed the world within the span of a generation by the power of the life-giving Spirit of the risen Lord, Jesus Christ. And so Jesus breathes on them and gives them this disturbing commission. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. And if you retain the sins of any, they are retained. I'm, gonna, I'm gonna, what? Are you are you talking to me? I think this verse has been misinterpreted many times. It's not as if Jesus is giving the disciples some privilege, some magisterial authority to pass judgment on who's in and who's out. I think that quite to the contrary, he's simply saying, as Cameron Murchison puts it, to the extent that the world responds to Christ in faith and receives the grace to turn away from the narcissism of pride and sloth, sins are forgiven. To the extent that the opposite happens, the world continues in the pride and sloth that are its own destruction. The unequivocal purpose of this spirit-breathed mission is to offer the new and renewed life that the risen one promises. I have this life-giving world changing power and message that I'm entrusting to you. And if they hear it and respond, their sins are forgiven. And if you don't tell them how else they're going to know, their sins are retained. That is a weighty responsibility that Jesus has given them and us. That the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name, or retention of them, in no small measure depends upon our faithfulness in sharing the life-giving good news with those who have not yet heard or have heard and not yet understood. Usually when this story is preached on, and goodness knows I've done this enough times, we cut straight to the the me by you' know, doubting Thomas and speculating about you know why was Thomas doubting and was that good or bad and how to, that's another sermon for another day, but I just would point out, notice that Thomas didn't believe Jesus appeared amongst the disciples on what we now call the Lord's day on Sunday, and for whatever reason. Thomas was not among the gathered community and therefore did not or perhaps could not believe. And we can only speculate about what was said and done in the the ensuing week. But I think that it's no coincidence that it was eight days later on the next Lord's Day when he was gathered amongst the believing community that the presence of the risen Lord was in their midst. And now he was able to believe where a week earlier he wasn't. That those who have ears fear. Being a Lone Ranger Christian is fraught with danger. Doing it on your own, trying to figure it out on your own, oftentimes doesn't work so well. And sometimes, it is only within the context of a community of faith that we are given the grace to perceive and believe and respond. Thanks be to God. This almost sounds like an ending to John's Gospel, although there are at least one other resurrection appearance that follows that may or may not have been added on. But this passage ends with the following statement that I'll leave you with. But these are written. Jesus did many other things. Jesus did many other things that are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may come to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that through believing You may have life in His name. Thanks be to God.